This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT1. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Change the NYPD, The Jimmy Dore Show, Counterspin, This Week in Blackness, Comedian Lee Camp, Moyers and Company, Activism from the Unfuck It Up Project, The Onion, and The David Feldman Show. I think people shouldn't have to live in fear. The point of police is not to instill fear, but I think the point of police is to protect people, to have them not feel like fear. My name is Kasim Walters. I'm a senior in high school, and I'm from Flappish, Brooklyn. East Flappish is very diverse many different people. Um, you definitely have your crime, you know, that's a part of it. But everybody's, you know, everybody's together. Everybody's a, a unit. The first time I was stopped and frisked, I was about 13 years old. I was, of course, leaving my house on my way to school to pick up a friend. My friend lives about maybe a block and a half away from me. And I was walking up the block. I made the left on New York Avenue. I was just waiting outside. And then the cops just pulled up. And they were like, oh, what are you doing? I was like, I'm waiting for my friend. And they was like, he lives here. And I was like, yeah. Um, they went through my book bag, through my stuff on the ground and all that. They were just asking me questions, being rough with me, telling me where I'm going to end up. You want to end up in jail? And then they both became very aggressive, um, searching in my pockets, turning me around and pushing me, like forcing my legs open, like yanking me. So at that moment, I, I don't know, I mean, frightened, I'm definitely frightened. Um, yeah, frightened and confused. The thing that changed for me first is the way I looked at police. I couldn't look at them the same. Um, I remember, I mean, it, it, it was bad to a point where I got robbed, I didn't call the police. They scare you now, so they instill this fear in you, and then it forces you to have this mindset that you are a criminal. So you wake up now and you're like, am I gonna get stopped? Uh, maybe I should wear something so I don't get stopped. Maybe I shouldn't wear a hoodie. If I see cops, it's like, should I cross the street? I don't want them to think I'm suspicious. Should I stay on the street and get harassed by them? And that's something that you shouldn't have to be paranoid about. I shouldn't have to be afraid of my commute. After that point of time, I've probably been stopped and frisked seven times. You know, I had a friend that was leaving the supermarket and he got stopped and frisked. I know friends that are um, giving high fives to each other at bus stops, and the cops stopped them thinking that they exchanged drugs. I mean, I had a friend coming home from football practice, and he had his cleats on and stuff like that, and he was walking with a limp. So I guess because he was walking with a limp, and he's a big guy, they assumed he got into some type of altercation, and they stopped him. I mean, so it's just, the list goes on and on. This is what really made me realize this is a, not a, a going to school problem. This is a neighborhood problem. This is a you're a young African-American male problem. This is a year from East Flatbush problem. If it happens to you once, you probably won't get it. If it happens to you under a random circumstance, you won't get it. But you have to understand that there's people that have been stopped over 10 times. There are people that have been stopped over 20 times. And it's just something that it's dehumanizing. No one has to ever want to go through that, especially when it's done in public, when it's done in front of family members, when it's done in front of your own son or your own daughter or just your own friends. 
I think the police's job is to get to know us, to make us feel like we can go to them, to make us feel like when we see them, we don't have to walk across the street. When we see them, we can say, what's up, without them thinking we're, we mean it sarcastically. When you look around, you should feel safer when you see a cop. You shouldn't feel like you're a target. And I think that's the main goal, is that we should feel like citizens of New York and not criminals. Fox News didn't take well to that. Didn't what? take well. Didn't take well to that. Don't what? blame. Don't blame Whitey. Don't blame Whitey for their trouble because that's the whole. So the whole thing is, is you're you're blaming Whitey. Don't blame us. It's not our problem that you guys are screwed up. Well, here's what they say. Here, we'll start it off with Bill O'Reilly. Here's the headline: Young black men commit homicides at a rate ten times greater than whites and Hispanics. Combined. Here's an inconvenient fact. Anytime there's interracial crime, there's an overwhelming chance that the victim is going to be white and that the criminal is going to be black. When you look at the crime numbers, African Americans, this is astonishing, African Americans make up 13% of the population but commit more than half the murders in this country. That's not. Yes. Okay, I'm convinced. So what they're saying is. President Obama, because President Obama told stories about when he was a young black guy walking across the street, white people locking their doors, right, in their cars. And that feeling he gets when a white woman clutches her purse in an elevator when he got on, that feel, that whole thing, he knows what that's like, or being tailed inside of a store. So what the guys at Fox News are saying, yeah, well, the reason we do that is because you guys are criminals. That's what they're saying. They're saying, yes, black guys are criminals. That's why we do this stuff, you guys. You guys are criminals, and we just pointed it out to you with statistics. Now, I was watching. But that's what that is, right, Frank? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, so they're saying uh, if a, uh affable-looking Harvard law professor walks by, you better be afraid. Yes. <laughs> yes. So they're saying we're right to be pre they're they're using statistics to justify prejudice. Is that is that are they not doing that? Yes, absolutely. Okay, okay. So that says so, so that is what's happening. So I was watching Stephen Colbert and you know, I've never done this before on the show. I've never played somebody else's comedy bit. But I'm gonna play this one. Uh, because it's per because I was like, Well, I gotta write my own bit about this and I'm like, you know, Stephen Colbert pretty he he, he nailed it. So this is about, I don't know, about a minute, 45 seconds to a minute of Stephen Colbert responding to all the pundits on Fox News saying that, of course, we're afraid of black people. They commit all the crimes. And here's how here's how Stephen Colbert handled it. Murders in this country. That's not prejudice. That's just math. OK, so if in 2011. So he gets out a little calculator. Out of 42 million African-Americans, 4,149 were arrested for murder, which means we can reasonably be scared of nine one-thousandths of one percent of African-Americans. Now, so he's, 
Nine one thousandths of one percent of African Americans were arrested for murder last year. Yes. Doesn't sound like a lot. Until, until you consider, until you consider that we don't know which nine one thousandths of one percent. So, to be safe, we have to be scared of all of them. Folks, it's the same reason, folks, this, this is the same reason I assume all Arabs are terrorists and all Irishmen are leprechauns. <laughs> I'm going to get your pot of gold, Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> now, I know what you're saying. You're so Okay, so, so we got it. So that's it. So that was Fox News saying, look at all these black murderers and killers and all this stuff. And Stephen Colbert kind of puts it in a real. So Stephen Colbert, the comedian, puts it in the proper frame. Unlike all those news people, including Chris Wallace, who I'm sorry, people say, oh, he's a straight newsman. Chris Wallace is a race baiter. He's race baited with Shirley Sherrod. He's race baiting with those statistics. And if he doesn't know what he's doing is race baiting, if he doesn't know those statistics, the way he's presenting them are skewed, incendiary and prejudiced, then he's not a good enough. He's not a good newsman. He's a horrible newsman that he should be fired yeah. for that, for being that bad, for not knowing what he's doing. But he does know what he's doing and he doesn't care. They be acting mad hot, boy, like, it's cool, bro. I became aware of the inequities between them and me, like, how much tenser I would be with cops in the vicinity and how comfortable they'd be exercising their liberty. We're now a week into the new year, and if you're anything like me, then you've just now finally recovered from the last couple of months of holidays. You're getting back into the flow of normal life again and just beginning to realize that we still have three or four months of darkness and coldness to deal with here in the Northern Hemisphere. For me, and this is totally true, the only thing that fends off seasonal depression during these months is to be productive doing something I care about. So if you've been putting off a project to start, now is the time to do it. And if you need a website, Squarespace is definitely the way to go. As long as you're going to be stuck indoors avoiding the arctic blasts of polar vortexes, then you might as well be building your future using the professional templates and seamless drag-and-drop tools at Squarespace. Whether you're building an online store for physical or digital goods, creating an online portfolio so that when people Google your name, they'll find something less embarrassing than they might otherwise, or promoting an offline venture like a restaurant or something, Squarespace has you covered. Their focus is on excellent design and powerfully simple usability, so anyone can build the world-class website of their dreams. Try Squarespace for free for 14 days to see all the details yourself, and then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT1, that's L-E-F-T and the number 1, to get 10% off your purchase, and that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. I see the black through my blue eyes Invisible criminal cop get the drop on me Probably never scrutinized My white skin glows ghostly in the street light Scared to be alone walking mostly in the street light Why? Most days, it's a good idea to ignore the cover of right-wing tabloid, the New York Post. But when it's saying there's a scary new crime wave starting in New York City, you might get curious. No surprise, though, the Murdoch-owned Post turns out to just be being the Post. The November 18th story is about the police stop-and-frisk policies being curtailed in the wake of a court ruling saying they violate the rights of the innocent, mostly people of color, who are targeted. The story begins, soberly enough, quote, New Yorkers, duck. 
Since Manhattan federal judge Shira Scheindlin ruled the NYPD's use of stop and frisk was unconstitutional three months ago, city cops have made nearly 12 percent fewer gun seizures. Close quote. Get it? If police can't stop black and brown men for no reason, you're more likely to get shot. Police are seizing fewer guns, so there must be more guns on the streets, hence the Post's cover line, Return of the Guns. Well, the problems start with the fact that there's just not much link between stop and frisk and gun seizures. Few guns are ever found this way. In 2011, there were nearly 700,000 stops, finding less than 800 guns, meaning guns were not found 99.9% of the time. Also, gun seizures declined in recent years overall, while stop and frisk exploded. Fewer guns seized may mean fewer guns to be found, which you'd think would be good news. In fact, the paper admits that still, overall, serious crimes are way down in the Big Apple and that the latest statistics on stop and frisk indicate cops were already reining in their use of the practice, cutting back stops some 50% over last year. So the police have been cutting back on stop and frisk, and the crime rate is way down. Only at the New York Post does that make fodder for a story about how dangerous a place gets when you're not allowed to violate some human rights. Never known a time when I wasn't really warned about how blackness is perceived with some malice and some scorn. But mama, I'm sure I didn't do nothing wrong. And then she said, that's not the point. I just don't want to see you gone. Growing up, it was me who was questioning the fact that being black, that I was always under some sort of attack. It was the bad kids, the Irish ones. I will be okay. And that's the same bullshit they used on Kamani Gray. 2013, how is not being white still a crime? And the innocent still gets stopped the frisk all the time. I'm American. I put that cane with some sort of rights that was undeniable with my skin was dark on light. So much fright. Abuse of authoritative might. Such, Such a, a sight. sight to see young folks scared to even fight for, for their, their rights. rights. Guess what? We need more voices who are white. Let's unite to put this shit to bed and say goodnight. So Don Lemon, for those of you who don't know, he is a uh, he is a, a, a commentator on um, and a he's an anchor. Sorry, he's an anchor um, on CNN, and uh, he went on a radio show in New York. Uh, and gave this pretty prolonged statement about um, stop and frisk and the mayor- mayoral race. I believe we actually might have the audio from that because I need people to listen to it because yeah. there's there's a, a, there's a little conversation going around about it on on uh, on Twitter. Uh, people are weighing in on it, and I feel as if people need to stop for a moment and listen to exactly what he said. You because need the entire the entire text, you really do. Because you have because I'm trying to figure out the best way of explaining. Uh, the issue with him because there is, there's an issue and people are like taking different, uh, stances. And, uh, then apparently Mark Lamont Hill weighed in and he got, uh, yelled at by some folks and then he, uh, then he started trying to defend himself from that. And so I'm just going, I, as opposed to before we go and, uh, and rip him a new one, which I mean, that would just be rude. Here is the exact clip. And now this is from the Tom Joyner morning show, uh, where he has a regular segment there. He, this is not the first time he's, uh, he does this. He does it, I believe, every week. I'm assuming Tom Joyner believes in the commentary of Mr. Lemon, hence why he has a regular segment there that he's paid uh, to, uh, uh, to do, I'm assuming, because if he's not being paid, it's weird that they have a sponsorship for it. And so, mm. let's, let's, let's get started. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Don, Don Lemon, Lemon, Lemon. 
Don Lemon's commentary is brought to you by General Motors, the all-new 2014 Chevrolet. First of all, <laughs> that was the bumper for Don Lemon's that was mo- uh, the segment. Craziest shit. Hey, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. Like so, Don Lemon brings us the truths we can't deal with. Appar- well, apparently, not only like we can't, yeah, we can't handle the truth, but it's you know. Uh-huh. Impala, inspired by the past, influenced by the present, driven towards the future. The see, see this. Remember, remember this when you're thinking about buying cars because this is a, this is being sponsored by 2014 Chevrolet Impala. Find new roads from New York. Don Lemon. Good morning. Good morning. It's election day, Tom. And if you and everyone in the U.S. aren't paying close attention to tonight's mayor's race in New York City, you should be, because so goes New York City. So goes the rest of the country. The entire country. Whatever happens in New York happens everywhere. You know how when uh, New York uh, banned all those sodas and how everyone didn't ban all the, uh, the yes. large sodas? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 wait, hold on. That was that time when uh, they, places started passing laws to specifically not ban sodas to throw a middle finger up at New York. But whatever. The city is home, aware of it or not. To one of the most important races in the world. Why? Stop. The world. The world. The world. Yeah. The mayor of New York is one of the most important things in the world. And frisk. Or stop question and frisk. The question part gets eliminated most of the time. And therein really lies the most crucial part of the law. The question part. Because if you question many people in New York City, even some black and Hispanic people, they will tell you that on the surface, they don't really have an issue with stop, question, and frisk. Not the idea of it, at least. Not if the controversial policy so, was conducted, wanna, like the occasional random on, airport did we, uh, did we just, uh, lose If they our could connection? really believe that officers would stop someone so. and say, Sir, I'm sorry, but I need to check your bag or your person. So... I would just, I just want to be clear, uh, that uh, on him and, and how he, uh, even how he, uh, frames this particular portion of the conversation here. Hold on. Let, 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 let's, let's, let's pull that back just a little bit. Hold on. But they know that that's not the reality of things on the street. They know that officers will mostly. And by, uh, so they, the they that they're speaking of is the black, he's that even black and Latinos will tell you that they're not, it's not, it's, it's, they're not completely against this. It's just how it's being done. It's like, you do realize a bunch of black and Latinos are absolutely completely against this, exactly how it's done. And it's not just the fact that, um, uh, 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 uh we're worried about certain cops being bad. It's just like, I, I don't want to be questioned randomly in the street. That's not, that, that that's kind of a thing, but whatever. Expl- explain to us, uh, Negro Whisperer. Likely not be that polite. If you can call that polite. They know that in reality, they will probably be ordered to put their hands up, spread their legs, or lay on the ground and be handcuffed while an officer or officers have their ways with them, touching them wherever they'd like, or handling them however they'd like. So for those of us who'd like to believe, in theory, that we'd rather be inconvenienced by being stopped by police and shot by gun-wielding criminals on the street, we deeply know that while that is true, it is highly unlikely that the police, the people holding the authority, and our fates in their own hands will treat us as citizens who deserve the same... So first of all, I take offense to the idea of that's that's the options. (laughs) Either uh, be shot in the street or be stopped by police officers. That's not quite what's happening. No. And it's interesting that that's, 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 that's the framing of it, but let, let, let's let the man ride. Respect as any other citizen who happens not to be of color in the United States. 
And while we are not letting the people who commit the crimes worthy of stop, question, and frisk off the hook for perpetuating the stereotype, we know that it is too easy for police and people in authority to become so drunk with power that they abuse it. Stop, question, and frisk is the biggest issue, the biggest issue in the country right now other than... Why does he, why does he keep calling it stop, question, and frisk? Is he, I, 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 I'm going to argue that that's a, that's, that's a bit of framing. Yeah. Jobs I mean, in Obamacare. And the next New York City mayor, he may not know it, but so goes New York City, so goes the rest of the country. If he alters the equation of the formula that has reduced crime in New York City to its lowest in decades, one of which is stop, question, and frisk, and the crime rate... Actually, it's, it's been statistically proven that stop and frisk is not, in fact, what's stopping the crime rate. What, no. are you, what, what are you talking about? Nope. That's cute, cute though, that you just said it with such a, such confidence and, 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 and owned it so that like people just go, oh, obviously, but actually you, what you just said is just absolutely completely false. Great creeps back up. Beyond local citizens moving away to the suburbs, people will stop visiting, stop spending their tourist dollars. A big. Really? People are going to stop spending their money in New York City, the capital of the world? I thought so goes New York City, so goes the rest of the country and or the world. Right. So they won't come here. I mean, but like the laws that will change there. But please, please note, if, uh, if, if crime starts to go up here, no one will come to New York City because back in the 80s and 90s, no one came to New York. Wait. People constantly came to New York City. It's been jokes about the tour of New York City being a tourist trap for 50 years. What are you talking about? Driver to the city's economy. The city will suffer international consequences. Cities and municipalities around the country will follow suit, looking at the Big Apple as an example of what to do or not to do. So whatever the mayor here decides will be reflected in your city, reflected in your crime rate, in your economy. So the question is, would you rather be politically correct or safe and alive? That's the real issue facing the citizens of... What? This is not the Thunderdome. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Would wait, you wait. rather be politically correct or safe and alive? Those are our choices? It's a little extreme. You know, you know, back in, um, back in the, in the 18th and, 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 and 19th and early 20th centuries, um, black people were considered to be like this scourge, right? Free black people were a scourge and lynchings were often used as a remedy for that. So, you know, they kept people safe and alive, I guess, except for the criminals. So if it was, we couldn't call it racist because that would be politically, politic, politically correct. So instead, we should just endorse state-sanctioned violence because it keeps the rest of us safe and alive. That's what we should do. Thank you, Don Lemon. Pretty soon, soon, ultimately, you. Who's favorite to win? Uh... Who's favorite to win here? De Blasio. Yeah. De Blasio's got it by a large margin, and he said he's going to change, stop, and frisk, and he said he might get rid of the police commissioner that helped reduce the crime, Ray Kelly. Simple. Is that the one with the, uh, the, the, black, yeah. the black wife? Yeah. He's got a black wife and two beautiful black kids, one of which has an afro that I'm joking. So, wait, I just want to be clear that he also is, uh, is, is bigging up uh, Ray Kelly. Mm-hmm. He's like, like he, the guy who helped bring down the crime. So you're, you're bigging up Ray Kelly, who is flat out, Flat out said some really outlandishly froggy ish about 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 people of color in poor communities in New York. Implemented this ridiculous, ridiculous and horrendous uh, uh, law, and you're like, almost speaking about him like he's like he's cool. 
What's who up? could be stopped and frisked any time. <laughs> or two who could be stopped and frisked. And, and well, three is what? Oh, my God. It's so hilarious. Because he has kids that can be stopped and frisked any time. That's hilarious. Safe. Politically correct and safe. <laughs> Either be politically correct or safe and alive. Those are your, those are your options. Yeah. So I just, the thing that is, that's, that's so, the, one of the many things that's so horrible about this is that, okay, first of all, Don Lemon, Don Lemon, if you're listening, which I know you're not, but if you were listening, sir, you are a journalist. First and foremost, you're a journalist and you didn't look up one fact. Not one, because if you did, it would dispute everything that you just said. Everything. I mean, the very fact that in 2012, for example, New Yorkers were stopped by the police 532,911 times. 89% of them were innocent. Of the, of the folks that were stopped, 55% were black, 32% were Latino. Innocent or so we thought. So if, if the, if the majority of people that are being stopped don't, aren't actually doing anything, why are you endorsing state-sanctioned harassment? That's the question. Look out, son. It's time to run. The cops are rolling up now, and they're reaching for the gun. And we're singing, stop and frisk. We are at risk. Brown or black, better watch your back. Police them are come and launch the attack. People, don't you know that the This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Now let me tell you something about black people. I sense you're getting a little nervous, and most of the time when a sentence starts that way, it doesn't end well. But it does quiet down a crowded room of people, you got to admit that. So I think instead of doing the spoon against the glass, you know, ting, 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 I think we should just go, let me tell you something about black people. Okay. Everybody ready for the speeches? As I was saying, let me tell you something about black people. Black people use drugs at about the same rate as white people. They comprise 13% of drug users and they comprise 13% of the U.S. population. Yet, they make up 38% of those arrested for drugs and almost 60% of those convicted of drug law violations. How could it be that black people are so much more likely to get locked away for the same thing? Clearly, it's because they're just terrible at hiding their drugs. They're always walking down the street with a goddamn three-foot-tall bong and huge bunch of nitrous oxide balloons just casually sucking on him. The cops are like, yeah, maybe we should arrest the guy with the dozen Yo Gabba Gabba Mylar balloons and the stupid grin on his face. Quick side note, why do children's shows always gotta look like a goddamn mushroom trip? What is it about children that makes them most interested in seizure-evoking psychedelic bizarro worlds? It basically seems like the volume on life is just slowly turned down as you age. You know, like you start off loving TV shows that can only be described as 
what it would look like if the color neon could ejaculate a dance team. And then by the age 50, uh, you're, you're enjoying like a, like a red robin. See a red robin out your window. It's very, very exciting. And then, and then when you're 90, you just look out on a field of dull brown grass for seven hours straight. And if Cookie Monster were to approach you, you'd probably swallow your dentures and your glass eyeball. But I digress. The real reason so many more black people are convicted is because our system is racist. And saying that is not an opinion. It's factually accurate. You're welcome to call it an opinion, but it's similar to calling the Holocaust an opinion, or climate change an opinion, or Anderson Cooper important, or Toronto Mayor Rob Ford demure. Black people are ten times more likely to be locked away for drugs despite doing an equal amount of drugs. The drug war was created in order to ensure the black community cannot progress beyond a certain point because the repercussions do not end with the years spent in jail. It tears apart a family, tears apart the stability of the community, and makes it harder to get a job, public housing, food stamps, or financial aid. It often takes away your right to vote for one of the crusty, bitchin' famous douchebags who will put perpetuate this system. So if ever there was a candidate who had 10% less douche in their bag and you wanted to vote for them, you couldn't. Drug arrests have nearly tripled over the past quarter century and we've spent one trillion dollars on this drug war. The US has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. And the privatized prisons making money off all this shit they constantly fight for harsher sentencing. There's a guy named Timothy Jackson in Louisiana who is in jail for life without parole for stealing a jacket. Meanwhile, white-collar criminals who nearly crashed the planet in 2008, like Lloyd Blankfein, walk around rich and free. The dude stole a jacket! I feel like the legitimate punishment for that should be a flick to the ear and, uh, don't do that, that was mean. Not life in prison! That jacket better have been wrapped around a dying orphan who was on the verge of freezing to death and happened to also be on the verge of solving all the world's energy problems. And as Jackson grabbed the jacket off the kid, he yelled, Ha ha ha, now you die from freezing to death, adorable child with an IQ of 190, and humanity will suffer. And even then, I feel like he should have gotten like five years. The system is racist and a crime against humanity. So next time you're about to give the best man speech or the maid of honor speech at a wedding, I recommend you start with, let me tell you something about black people. And then I'm going to tell you how I became good friends with Derek over there. But first, black people are the victims of an incredibly racist criminal justice system. By the way, Linda, you look stunning on your special day. You really do. Last month in Sydney, Australia, they threw an annual event called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. One of the main speakers was David Simon, 
the writer and producer who created The Wire and Treme, two television series that vividly portray the vast gap between rich and poor. Nothing drives that great divide home, he said, like our prison system. You're seeing the underclass hunted through a, a war on uh, dangerous drugs, allegedly, that is in fact merely a, a war on the poor and has turned us into the most incarcerative state uh, in the history of mankind at this point. He's right, of course. During the past 30 years, the number of inmates in federal custody has grown by 800 percent, and half of them are serving sentences for drug offenses. According to the Sentencing Project, an advocacy group dedicated to changing how we think about crime and punishment, more than 60 percent of the people in prison are now racial and ethnic minorities. This book woke people up. The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. She was my guest more than three years ago when the book was first published. An outstanding work of scholarship on how our war on drugs, our harsh mandatory minimum sentencing, and racism have converged to create a caste system in this country very much like the one under Jim Crow segregation laws. None of us at the time anticipated the powerful impact her book would have. It became a bestseller, spurred an even wider conversation about justice and inequality, and transformed Michelle Alexander from attorney and professor to an activist and advocate for an end to our dehumanizing penal system. Michelle Alexander, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When the book came out, um, one reviewer called it the Bible of a social movement. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the apostles and the disciples and the church spreading? Have you seen the signs of a movement? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it has me so encouraged. As I travel from city to city and I've been speaking in churches and at universities, I've been speaking inside prisons and reentry centers, just an incredible range um, of venues. I see over and over again um, people who are dedicating their lives now. Um, to ending the system of mass incarceration, to raising consciousness, people of faith who are organizing their church communities, um, organizing within mosques, um, holding study circles, holding film festivals, and then organizing and mobilizing their memberships or their congregations. I'm especially encouraged by formerly incarcerated people who are finding their voice um, and organizing to demand the restoration of their basic civil and human rights. Um, organizations like All of Us Are None, which has successfully, um, you know, achieved ban the box um, legislation. Ban and the box? Ban the box on employment applications. The, you know, box on employment applications that ask that dreaded question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And, of course, it doesn't matter whether you've been convicted of a felony a few weeks ago or 40 years ago. For the rest of your life, you're labeled a felon and then subject to legal discrimination for the rest of your life. And what are those ex-felons, what have they been telling you about what it's like to come out and try to get back into the society to which they have paid for their sins? I think it's just an extraordinary challenge. I mean, I think most people have this sense that when you're released from prison, well, yeah, life is hard. But if you really dedicate yourself, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, knock on enough doors, you'll get that job, you'll get your life back together. It may be hard, but if you really try, you can do it. 
But what I've learned, you know, over the years from working with um, many formerly incarcerated people and forming close friendships with many people who've been released from prison, is that it, it's not just hard, it's often impossible. You're released from prison, often with, you know, maybe $20 in your pocket, have nowhere to sleep. You try to return home, maybe to your family who lives in pu public housing. Um, felons can be excluded from public housing. Whole families can risk eviction if they allow people with felonies to come home to them. Trying to get a job can be next to impossible. Um, you know, people say, well, well, they could get a job at, you know, Burger King or, you know, some minimum wage job. No, actually, you know, many low wage um, jobs are for all practical purposes, off limits to people who have felonies. Hundreds of professional licenses are off limits to people who have felonies. In my state, in Ohio, until just recently, you could even get a license to be a barber uh, if you'd been convicted of a felony. Food stamps may be off limits to you if you've been convicted of a drug felony. Um, you know, what are people released from prison expected to do? Apparently what we expect them to do is to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support, which continues to accrue while you're in prison. And in a growing number of states, you're actually expected to pay back the costs of your imprisonment. <laughs> and paying back all these fees, fines, and court costs may be a condition of your probation or parole. And then if you're one of the lucky few, the very few who even manages to get a job straight out of prison, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished to pay back all those fees, fines, court costs. How do you explain this, given the fact that this is a society that celebrates uh, second chances for politicians in particular, <laughs> a society that is built around the theme of renewal, born again, mm -hmm. uh, and yet doesn't extend that same act of forgiveness to people who have paid for their sins. Well, we say we're a society that supports second chances, but in reality, we're not. And I think um, the reason to fully understand what's happened in this country with respect to mass incarceration, you have to look back at least 40 years um, to um, the law and order movement that was born um, in the midst of the civil rights movement. You know, when civil rights advocates were beginning to violate segregation laws and sit in at lunch counters and um, desegregate trains and buses, um, violating what they believed were unjust laws, um, segregationists said, you know, this is leading to the breakdown of the respect for law. We need law and order in this country. Um, and the call for law and order was in direct response to um, the civil rights movement and the nonviolent civil disobedience um, the protesters were engaged in. Um, but this law and order movement began to take on a life of its own um, as crime rates began to rise in urban areas and um, some politicians began to say, you know, this rising crime is a symptom of this attitude of lawlessness that is spreading through the nation. We need to get tough. We need to crack down. We need law and order. And as I've documented at great length in the book and many other 
political scientists and historians have as well. The Get Tough movement and the war on drugs really is traceable to a backlash against the gains of African Americans in the civil rights movement and a radical shift in mentality that occurred where as a nation we ended the war on poverty and declared the war on drugs. A wave of punitiveness really swept the nation on the heels of the civil rights movement. And this attitude um, has infected not only our criminal justice system, but our education system that now has a zero-tolerance policy for school discipline infractions right. um, and has led to this prison-building boom, unlike anything the world has ever seen. How have mandatory minimum sentences contributed to that? Well, mandatory minimum sentences ensures that you will get the harshest possible sentence um, under law, the mandatory minimum sentence. And so it shifts power to the prosecutors so that prosecutors can then say to you, will you take this plea or else you're going to get this harsh mandatory minimum sentence? Um, and it gives prosecutors the power um, to, you know, encourage plea deals. Um, you know, in the federal system, I think 97 to 98 percent of all, you know, charged cases result in a plea, not a trial, because people are terrified of facing these harsh mandatory minimum sentences. And it ensures that it's up to the prosecutor, not the judge. Um, you know, what kind of uh, sentence you receive. And mandatory minimum sentences has a lot to do with the exponential increase in our prison population in the United States. Um, and today, you know, even in this era of Obama, in this time of supposed colorblindness, um, we now have created a system of mass incarceration, a penal system unprecedented in world history. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. Um, and the majority of the increase um, in incarceration in the United States have been among impoverished people of color who, once they're swept into the system, are then stripped of the very rights supposedly won in the civil rights movement. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. This Best of Left activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project. Today's campaign, Divest from Private Prisons. 
Private prisons, as covered previously on this show, are awful for a number of reasons. They provide a profit incentive for locking more Americans behind bars and for extending their sentences whenever possible. The more embedded they become in our communities, the more like the military-industrial complex they become, with legislators unable to limit or eliminate contracts because of local economies relying on the jobs. The number of private prisons has increased 20-fold in the last decade, the majority of which house a population that is overwhelmingly young men of color. Big business has been unable to help itself not just from profiting off the housing of these inmates, but also from putting them to work for near-slave wages. According to the Center for Research on Globalization, a Canadian nonprofit focused on humanitarian issues, because the corporations that own private prisons don't have to worry about pesky things like unions, unemployment insurance, or vacation pay, they are forcing inmates to labor under essentially slave conditions. Inmates are routinely paid 25 cents an hour and punished for on-the-job infractions with isolation or worse. Human rights and labor groups, both domestic and international, are coming forward to condemn the conditions. It turns out that, much to the surprise of private prison boards and ownership, these inmates do, in fact, have constitutional rights. So what do we do about this inherently racist corporate profit model? Colorofchange.org is following the divestment strategy being utilized successfully by groups like 350.org to tell the leadership of corporations supporting private prisons that private prisons are bad business. You can find their thorough but to-the-point letter on their homepage and under their campaign tab. Join with Color of Change, whose stated goal is to, quote, make government more responsive to the concerns of black Americans and to bring about positive political and social change for everyone, unquote. Adding your voice to their growing course takes less than a minute and helps tremendously. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? Not just knee-jerk reaction, but action. Living. Activism. Mm-hmm. Begin tonight with an update on a story we've been following all week. Hannah Stevenson, the 16-year-old girl from Detroit, accused of stabbing a classmate to death with a screwdriver last month. At her arraignment this afternoon, Hannah received the harshest possible sentencing from the judge. She will be tried as a black adult. Due to the extreme and violent nature of this crime, this court finds it fitting to try the defendant as an African-American. Henceforth, you will be referred to for the jury by the name Wondell Brown. Once the trial begins next week, all courtroom images of Hannah will depict her as a 300-pound muscular black man, and jury members will be instructed to imagine her as such. We're going to do our best to make sure that Hannah is treated with the sympathy and sensitivity that she, as a photogenic white girl, deserves. This is America. Nobody deserves to be treated as a black man. Now that Hannah has been ruled black, the court has instructed local media to assume she's guilty. And the police have retroactively charged her with assaulting her arresting officer. Hannah's two dozen character witnesses have been replaced by a single crack addict who goes by the name of Skaggs. Hannah's parents are, of course, planning to appeal the ruling, saying that their daughter should at most be tried as a black celebrity or a stunningly beautiful Filipino lady.
was Cosby lecturing black people in the 80s? Yeah, even in the, he really got into it in the 90s and the early aughts, as you're alluding to. But yeah. even in the 80s, he was starting to distinguish between us and them, us being those who are responsible and, and pursuing a politics of respectability, whereby we try to make ourselves look good in the eyes of whites versus those ghetto Negroes or bad Negroes who are flaunting our dirty laundry and generating a bad impression for us as a race, which hurts us when those white decision makers have to make policy decisions about our future and have to weigh our interest against competing interests. So there's always been this kind of politics of, of respectability perspective that's come out of not only politicians, but out of media, celebrities and the like. And Bill Cosby's always been kind of more or less associated with that, you know, kind of good Negro respectable Negro image, which is which has its place. I don't have a problem with that either. I just have a problem with folks who come from that perspective wagging their fingers at and lecturing truly disadvantaged blacks who come from grinding poverty, crumbs, roaches, and rats, and have to make choices that they never had to make because they were coming from middle-class backgrounds. So a little more humility mm -hmm. in the judgments that they pass on their own brethren and sistren, I think, would be advisable for somebody like Cosby. Right. On, on this show, your last appearance, you criticized Chris Rock for that routine, and you've criticized President Obama for lecturing black pe people, black men, to be more responsible. Refresh my memory, yeah. the audience, is why you found... Uh, Chris Rock's routine so offensive. Yeah, it's such a strong temptation. Chris Rock, as you pointed out, David, made his reputation early in his career yeah. off a famous routine in which he said the punchline was, I love black people, but I hate niggas. He says, I, you know, there's a civil war going on in black America right now between good Negroes and bad Negroes. He didn't use that language. Randy Kennedy of Harvard Law School did. He said and between... Is he black, Randy Kennedy? Randy Kennedy is black, too. Right. Um, um, Chris Rock said there's a, war, a civil war going on in black America between law-abiding black people and law-breaking niggas. And he says, um, you know, show me, um, sign me up for the Ku Klux Klan when it comes to going after them niggas. And that was his punchline. He had people rolling in the aisles. Black people rolling. Black people rolling. It was a mostly black audience rolling right. in the aisles, showing that this kind of politics of respectability that he was inviting his audience to engage in, that is a, a, a distinction between the law abiding among us and the law breakers and putting as much distance between those those of us who um, who are law abiding as possible, um, and those who are law breakers, that that mentality has deep roots in the black community. Even though it has a strong class dimension, because it turns out that the middle class black crime rate and the middle class white crime rate are in are indistinguishable. They're exactly the same. So most of the crime being committed and, and filling the jail cells and creating these profiling images that the, the black Brahmins so much complain about, most of that crime is being done by truly disadvantaged blacks, poor blacks. So when he says, I love black people, I hate niggas, what he's really saying is, I hate poor blacks as somebody who's not poor black, a poor black person myself.
And that's the, that's the kind of invidious, vicious, pernicious class dimension to the politics of respectability pursued by Clarence Thomas, um, um, people like um, um, Juan Williams, for that matter, Bill Cosby, um, any number of Larry others. Larry Elder? Larry Elder, yes. That is, that is, the, that is the whole, in a nutshell, uh, uh, wedge that's driven in the black community between the haves and the have-nots is really what it boils down to. The have-nots are disproportionately turning to crime as a, ma- as a way of eking out an existence, um, and the haves have more opportunities, therefore don't have to turn to crime less, and, you know, as the old saying used to go, having been born on third base, swear they heard it hit a triple when mm-hmm. it comes to criticizing so-called ghetto Negroes. So, yeah, this is a long-standing issue in the black community. It goes back to field Negroes and house Negroes, and it runs right up to the present, just like in American society generally. We have a problem between, in this split between haves and have-nots, a growing gap between the two. So the black community's problems are really the canary in the mine shaft problems. They, for, they kind of presage. They are harbingers of uh, problems and dilemmas that America more generally is going to face as the gap between those who have and don't those who don't continues to widen so when chris rock cosby president obama randall kennedy randall kennedy yes absolutely lecture black men to be more responsible they're doing a disservice to the community because they're not recognizing the external forces that contribute to absentee fathers Absolutely. They, they, they want to reduce a social problem to a personal problem. They want to reduce social oppression to personal irresponsibility. And whenever you do that, you run into the same problems that were created by that, you know, really good book 50 years ago called the, uh, called the, um, um, the Other America, in which Michael Harrington first discovered poor people in America. He said, you know, they are farm workers. They are the elderly. They they are uh, they are inner city black folk and they are rural folk, right? Um, Appalachian whites and rural folk. And he said, um, we have to do something about this. And everyone said, wow, you know, our eyes have been open. But his explanation of why those people were poor set us back, and we're still trying to get over it. His explanation was they're a culture of poverty. It wasn't the lack of jobs, macroeconomic forces. It was internal deficiencies in poor people themselves their cultural deficiencies, the fact that they couldn't defer gratification, the fact that they needed to satisfy themselves right now, the fact that they had an enfeebled little self, a little ego that couldn't regulate themselves, that was the reason. You sound like a Republican. First I, of, yes. I, I, first of all, I didn't know that about Harrington. I always yes. thought that he that was the Bible of uh, the great society. Yes. It was a great book in a lot of ways, except for that explanation. The explanation he gave let middle-class white America and middle-class America off the hook. It said, don't worry about those poor people. They're not your fault. They're not a necessary byproduct of the kind of economic system we have that has have-nots and haves, inequality as its background. Don't worry about those social factors. The problem with the poor is the poor themselves.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. First of all, as always, a couple of quick reminders. Stitcher Awards voting is going on right now until January 13th. You can vote every day until then. So please, you know, mark your calendars, set an alarm, do whatever you need to do, and vote for best of left in, in the news and politics category every day. We can totally win this, and, and so you know, every every vote is absolutely appreciated. Uh, that is linked at bestofleft.com, so you can just go there and click right through to the awards. What is also linked at bestofleft.com, so you should just do both at the same time, is uh, the link right to my fundraising page for this year's Polar Bear Plunge. I am going to be jumping into the icy cold Potomac River on January 25th, and I'm hoping to raise $1,500 between now and then. This is going to the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, one of the most effective local climate organizing groups in the country, the one that I used to work for. It's right here in the D.C. area. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in donating to that, then, uh, you know, also that would be greatly appreciated. Now, today I'm going to tell a little bit of a story. This, this story actually started months and months ago. It was like last summer, maybe last spring. And the story sort of developed over the course of uh, an exchange of emails with a listener. It took a lot of clarification. And by the time, you know, I, I sort of got things figured out, I just thought, all right, I'll come back to that. I'll come around to that. And so, lo and behold, today's the day I'm coming back around to it. I was actually, I, I inspired myself to come back around to it because I, I told a version of this story uh, on the members-only show, a, a recent episode of, for members-only. I thought, this had been on my list to talk about for a long time. I finally uh, told that story, and I thought, you know what? Uh, let's just do it. Let's let's bring it to the, the full audience and and go from there. So, to, for for context, I will explain that you know being a white thirty year old man uh, who grew up in California, my the elementary school I went to, uh, I think I only ever remember there being one black student that I ever met in the seven years I was at that school. And my high school was some, you know, it was up there in the like the 97% white range, something like that. So that's my background. And I grew up basically, I mean, being taught or just having an understanding that the definition of racism was bigotry based on race. So, you know, bigotry is just like you don't like people because of something about them. But racism was you don't like somebody because of their race. It's just a more specific way of describing bigotry. And the story starts when Elka from Fort Wayne, Indiana calls in and is, is sort of frustrated that I seem to have a misunderstanding of the definition of racism, and which confuses me because I've never known any other definition, and she's the first person in the world to ever tell me otherwise. And so that started an email conversation that, you know, eventually I think we finally came to an understanding between each other, and I understand, understood her perspective more. But uh, before I, I get into more details, I will play that voicemail. The reason that this voicemail never got played is because I thought, you know, if my audience is anything like me, and I think a lot of you are, this message might confuse you more than 
clarify things for you the way I think Elka wanted it to, which is, so anyways, I will play it and we'll come back and talk more about it. Hi, Jay, this is Elka in Fort Wayne. I just wanted to respond to your final comments to Scott and Philly. I think what you said should hopefully provide some understanding, some clarity for him. But, you know, I have to say, I, I, I'm just, I'm really shocked, confused. I don't know what I'm feeling about this lack of understanding of, of the term racism and racist. Even coming from you, when you say all forms of racism, I'm wondering if you could clarify what you mean by that, because racism and, and being a racist is about using power, privilege, and resources to oppress an entire group of people. As a black woman in this country, I don't have enough power, privilege, or resources to oppress anyone um, or to even participate in the oppression of, of any other group. People of color don't have enough power, privilege, or resources to oppress white people. LGBTQ people don't have enough power, privilege, or resources to oppress uh, heterosexuals. So I, I guess I need people to understand that when you're talking about racism, you're not talking about prejudice, bias, bigotry. Those are, those are things. Those are real things. I can be prejudiced. I can be biased. I can be bigoted. But I cannot be a racist. So, you know, again, I, I really would like for that to be cleared up, put on the table, provide some, some clarity when people are talking about the difference between being racist and being bigoted and prejudiced. That's all I have, Jake. Thanks. Bye. This was actually the second of two separate messages that Elka left. I, I played the second one because it's, you know, it's a little shorter, so it fit better. But I was confused by this message at, at first, honestly, because I like sort of flummoxed by it because, you know, as I said, based on my upbringing, her definition of racism was completely different. I mean, very similar, but also distinctly different than the way I understood it. You know, what I took away from her message was that she was simply describing the term that I knew as institutionalized racism or institutional racism. And I thought, well, that's related, but it's a different thing than racism. And, you know, the way I had always been taught it, that racism was just bigotry based on race. And so, you know, rather than play either of these messages on the show and, and start the conversation there, I actually emailed Elka because, you know, we've been in touch by email in the past. So I, I got in touch just to try to ask her, you know, to clarify so I could wrap my mind around it. So it actually started sort of a long exchange between us. And so, you know, long story short is that she basically ended up making the point that the, the definition of racism has changed over time. The definition of racism used to include power structures in its definition. To be racist used to include the concepts of the use of power and privilege to sort of impose your bigotry on others, but it has changed over time probably to soften that definition and to sort of let the power structure off the hook. Because if racism is just bigotry, well, then anyone can be a bigot, but not anyone can exercise their power on, on someone else based on that bigotry. So, you know, it, it, it's a really interesting concept. I'm really glad she brought it up. Uh, you know, frankly, I, I processed this for a while. You know, I had an exchange with her and I thought, all right, like I'll come back around to that. And I'm sorry it took so long. It, it really, there's no reason I couldn't have brought it up earlier. I just sort of didn't think of it. But 
I actually have a clip that talks about this issue because I've since heard a couple more people talk about it, uh, you know, talk about racism and power structures and whatnot. And so I had this bonus clip for you guys from Radio Dispatch. They talked about, you know, racism and power structures, and it didn't quite fit in with today's show topic, but, you know, close enough. So bonus clip, go. And it's from a listener uh, who we love hearing from, who we've heard from before. And he says, anyway, I wanted to write about the discussion of the overuse of the term anti-Semitism to silence criticism of Israel. I can't count the number of times I've been called an anti-Semite for my pro-Palestinian activism. Both and, oh, and I was just going to say, and this is um, from a conversation that we had about um, using the term bigot and the whether there's danger in having it be overused or mm-hmm. not. Yeah, and I think I can say that this is from listener Hussein. I think he's given me the, the clear to uh, so. identify himself in the past. So talking about um, yeah criticisms of Israeli policy, those who criticize Israeli policy being called anti-Semites. Um, so Hussein says, I can't count the number of times I've been called an anti-Semite for my pro-Palestinian activism, both online and in real life. Well, it used to hurt at first. Unfortunately, now I laugh at it. The term has been so watered down that instances of real violent anti-Semitism almost go unnoticed. A friend of mine told me about the time, not so long ago, when her younger brothers came in asking her what the K-word means, because some kids were calling them that. There are violent attacks on Jewish people that happen pretty regularly in the West. We only hear about them when Arabs are perpetrators. Not that we shouldn't hear about those too, but the vast majority come from neo-Nazi and fascist groups. Jewishness in the West is an interesting identity. Because Jewish people are white until their Jewishness gets, uh, because Jewish people are white until their Jewishness gets in the way of other white people. Another aspect that I wanted to touch on is that a few anti-Semites try to associate themselves with the pro-Palestinian movement. They're usually very quickly called out and excluded by people in the movement, but we do need to always stay vigilant about it. Finally, I'd like to express this. I think calling Palestinians in Palestine anti-Semites is as problematic as calling black people in apartheid South Africa uh, or in the U.S. racists against white people. It doesn't make any sense since they are an oppressed group and they have no power to affect any structural oppression on Jewish people there. More importantly, all Palestinian liberation organizations, yes, including Hamas, have repeatedly and often pointed out that their struggle is against Zionism, not Jewish people. I get that statements and actions aren't the same, but it's still important to have this said. And I I want to read again what uh, what Hussein said about calling Palestinians anti-Semites. So he Uh says, I think calling Palestinians in Palestine anti-Semites is as problematic as calling black people in apartheid South Africa or in the U.S. racists against white people. He continues, it doesn't make any sense since they're the oppressed group and they have no power to affect any structural oppression on Jewish people there. Which is such an important point because sometimes there's just an article going around or a thingy going around on Facebook that I think it was from that 2020 show, What Would You Do? Where they like goof people on camera or whatever uh, <laughs> and that one i'm not aware of it was about it like looks sounds doesn't sound good it's yeah it's i mean it's a 2020 enterprise um <laughs> and i didn't i haven't watched the video but just seeing the headline that i saw was like black people racist towards white girlfriend in a barber shop or something and it's like somebody like a black person brought in a white person to a barbershop and i don't know what happened from there but the headline was oh there was Uh, racism against this white person and i saw like a lot of people sharing it like oh racism goes both ways or (laughs) whatever and it's just like you know what prejudice as far as i know with like the pedagogy of of teaching about oppression 
for something to be an ism, it has to not just have the hate part, but it has to have power. Yeah. It has to come with power. So you can be and prejudiced. Domination. And do- yeah, and domination. And, and structural power, as Hussein says. So, you know, certainly people can be prejudiced against people, and you can maybe say, you know, that's wrong. Uh, if you feel like if you feel like the most important issue in America is black people being <laughs> prejudiced against white people, then, like, yeah, you have the right to think that, I guess. But uh, that's not what racism – racism is not just – hatred and discrimination and prejudice but it is also power and racism in the united states comes from white supremacy so the idea that again the idea that like racism from you know quote-unquote racism against white people is racism or is like again like the first and foremost problem in the united states is ridiculous and i think that that's something that should be more widely talked about and and so i really appreciate hussein also making that parallel with talking about israel and palestine that palestinians are structurally disempowered that even if palestinians have negative feelings about zionism that is not the same thing (laughs) as being the oppressor being anti you know the 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 power element is not there now just to finish off today uh, the conclusion that i have come to so far on this subject is i think unfortunately that the battle for the definition of the term racism may already have been lost that you know the, the definition has changed the dictionary definition has changed language evolves over time you know, I and everyone I know understands racism to mean just race-based bigotry and has nothing to do with power. You, you have to include the term institutional to, to to start delving into the issue of power. And so, I, I, you know, I think maybe the battle has already been lost, but it doesn't mean that this discussion isn't worth having. Like knowing the etymology of a word and knowing that it has changed over time can at least be you know, similarly valuable to that word having retained its meaning all along. Because frankly, the definition being described by Elka and Radio Dispatch is the more useful definition. It's the one that actually makes sense. It, it, it is more in line with how the world actually works. Because bigotry without power, you know, there's not much to it. There's not much to, to talk about to sort of echo what I think Molly from Radio Dispatch was saying, people who don't have power can be bigoted all they want, but it doesn't get them anywhere. (laughs) They can't do anything about it. They can hate white people based on their race, but they don't have the power to change the social structures to make all white people seem suspicious so that they could then implement laws and policies that make white people the victims of police harassment on the streets of the city where they live. You know, they can't do that. So, their bigotry doesn't amount to much, whereas the bigotry of white people amounts to policies which only serve to reinforce the institutional inequalities between the races. It's a big difference. If you have thoughts on this, call in 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher, of course, voting in the Stitcher Awards. 
donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder